Mm. Okay, so we got like a hefty source packet in front of us. We're not necessarily gonna um, go. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna go through a little bit of everything, but we're not necessarily gonna um, get through every single line. But you know, it's something to do when you get bored and go home and want to read up. Um, I was I was saying before that with these, like we're doing articles now, and I just could not in good faith cut down on any of these pieces. Like I started to take out these different excerpts, but they're so rich with such great writing. And then I thought also it's sort of disingenuous, right? Because I could pull out the paragraph that I really want you to focus on, but then you're going to read a different paragraph and say, that's not how I read it. So you have it all in front of you. I've underlined some parts, um, but we'll, we'll kind of get to that in just a minute. Um, I'm going to start with an introduction, then we'll do some fabruta, so you'll have some time to read through all of the different pieces, and then we'll come back together for discussion. Um, but most of what we're going to be doing, so this is really fun for me. Um, I, I started all of my Jewish learning in this basic drash, and, and uh, it's, it's been a really exciting journey. Um, and most of the time when I still do teaching, even though a lot of the work that I do now is sort of very practical work, I still have opportunities to teach at, at a shul or in our community. And I tend to do a lot of self-text study, a lot of Talmud, a lot of Tanakh. Um, and so this is sort of a little bit more unusual for me that I get to sort of merge like the work that I'm doing on a daily basis with like some of the study of, of where that comes from. So I, I don't often get to do some of these more contemporary sources, but I'm really excited about it because this has been um, an interest of mine and a passion of mine for a long time. Um, and we're going to be looking at, at like some of the greatest minds of the last century. When we do, when we talk about Jewish-Christian relations, um, most of what we're going to talk about today is technically Jewish-Catholic relations. Um, and so it, it's going to have implications for Christianity as a whole. But when we start talking about this shift um, towards modern relationships between Christianity and Judaism, <coughs> most of that originates with the Catholic Church. Um, so for those of you who, right, I mean, just very basically, right, you've got Catholic Church and you've got Protestants, and then there's Greek Orthodox and tons of others that we're not going to go into. Um, but the reason why most of what we do has to do with the Catholic Church is really simply because the Catholic Church has this hierarchical structure in which there's a head of the Catholic Church, the Pope. Um, and so when changes happen in the Catholic Church, though they don't happen often and they can be slow moving, there's actually a process for that change in a way that in Protestant communities happens in much more unstructured ways or more grassroots. So what happens in the Catholic Church has huge implications on the Protestant community, although not necessarily because the Pope said it, but because these shifts start to happen overall. But the writings that we're going to be reading are going to be specifically responding to what's happening in the Catholic Church. So again, the, the Jewish writers that we're going to talk about are going to talk, they're speaking generally about Christianity, but this is in the context of shifts in the Catholic Church. Does that make sense to everybody? Yeah. Okay, so most of the sources are going to be really in the 60s, um, because that's when Vatican II happened, and that's when the Catholic Church starts to really change its relationship. Um, so what I want to really spend time on this morning is looking at three, um, like I said, it's probably three of the greatest minds of, um, of the past century. Um, all of whom, although they emerged as the leaders in this debate about interfaith dialogue, are actually also just geniuses for the Jewish community as a whole. Um, and those three individuals are Abraham Joshua Heschel, Joseph Baer Soloveitchik, and Moshe Feinstein. Um, they are contemporaries of each other. So Heschel was uh, 1907 to 1972, um, Soloveitchik was 1903 to 1993, and Feinstein was 1895 to 1986. 
Sure. Heschel is 
Um, and then Dabur Ahmed was coming more from like reforming conservative rabbis, which also had to do with some of the internal debate. And then he goes back to what I said in the beginning, right? Like in the Catholic Church, you've got a pope, and it's a bishop degree. Like the Jewish community, you've got no central authority that's going to really say it. But but even even from like a from like a philosophical vantage point, like the arguments never really took over. You know, like if people talk about when we talk about modern interfaith relations, people are more likely to quote Heschel and Salvatic than they are to quote Dabrowski. Oh, right. And so, so I wanted to give it to you, but like you're gonna read it, but like we're not gonna actually spend a lot of time on it because I want you to see what people tried to do and then what didn't work. Um, okay, then you've got an essay from Heschel. So actually, the back of your packet, so I added this at the end, so it's not in your table of contents, but the very last thing in your packet that's not numbered um, is um, and it, it was a a, um, a memo called On Improving Catholic Jewish Relations. I'm so excited because this is actually, it's in typeface. This was like the original type document that Heschel submitted to um, Cardinal Bea of the Vatican Council saying like, here are my recommendations for what this document should say. Um, and I just love anything that's sort of like in the original typeface and all of that stuff. Um, so I, I added that in the last minute because I found it and I said, we got to squeeze it in. Um, and so you've got that document from Heschel and then you also have an essay of his called Transition to Dialogue. Um, that's the one that's sort of the next in your paragraph. That's more of a philosophical essay that he wrote in response to, um, and Transition to Dialogue is very much responding to salvation. Um, and that is adapted from talks. So a lot of the essays that we're going to see were actually talks that were given at various um, uh, like rabbinical councils um, that then get adapted for essays and published later on. So that's published in 1967, but again, it's sort of like dating back to an address that he did in 1966, but it's also part of the work that he had been doing for years earlier. So the dates that we're going to do are not perfect dates. So I want you to have the dates you should know it. Everything that we're talking about is sort of assume everything is happening somewhat contemporaneously. So I just don't want you to say, like, well, he wrote that in 1967, but No Shratate was 1965. It's not right, like, No Shratate is right, like, that's when they're all published, but, like, Heschel's already talking about No Shratate before No Shratate is published. You follow what I mean with that? Okay, so all of these things are sort of happening at the same time. Um, so they did confrontation. Um, this is perhaps mm. the most consequential essay on Catholic Jewish dialogue. Um, this was delivered at a talk in 1964. So again, all the same time period here. And then was subsequently published. Um, and then I've given you two responses from like, Moshe Feinstein. And these are in 1967. So these are probably some, these might actually just be somewhat later than everything that we've said. Um, and it's very interesting. The first one is in response to a letter by, um, some of you may know, Rabbi Bernard Lander of Lander's College. Right at the time, he was Dean of Turo. He had been invited to um, attend a Protestant Jewish Catholic dialogue. He said he would go. And then he wrote to Rabbi Moshe Feinstein and said, I agreed to go to this, and now I'm a little bit worried about it. Should I go? And so Rabosha wrote back a pretty scathing no, do not go. Um, and that's what you have there. You have that in the original. And then um, the translation of David Ellis, because it's not my translation, so you could argue it without offending me. Um, then, and then the second piece that's included in there is actually a letter. So I told you that they talked to each other, and you'll see it suddenly. But this is explicitly, this is a letter that Rabosha Feinstein wrote to Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik saying, 
There's this problem in our community, and it's called interfaith dialogue, and I think the two of us should write a joint talk together. Would you join me on it? And he gives a sample, he says, here's, here's a draft of the talk that we might give, um, but feel free to write your own. And fascinatingly, there's absolutely no record of celebration ever answered by So those are those are the pieces that we're going to kind of go through. And like, what's really exciting to me is that you, we've got these like major players in the Jewish community who are all really involved in this discussion and this debate. And we're going to see, like I said, like everybody here, like they're all reading each other. They all know what's going on. Um, there's tons of connections between the three of them. And so there's really very much live discussion that's happening as this is going on, right? Like literally, the Pope is calling, saying, "Hey, could you guys come to Rome?" And like these three rabbis are sort of debating. Do we show up? Do we not show up? And what happens in it? So that's what I wanted to start with, and I'm going to pose three questions to you um, as we as we go through these sources. So feel free to go through, um, pair up with somebody, somebody when you get to like study together, right? And, um, and so the three questions that I want to pose to you are just basically the first one is very simply: What are the arguments of casual salvation in Christ? Okay, so like very simply, right? Hey. Very simply, what is it that they're saying to each other? Where are the sources? Where is Where are the There are... Do we not have more? Oh, we'll get other ones. Because I need such a big source sheet, I know that uh, they were they were, they were less excited about copying too many of them, so we can get more. Um, I'll double check on that in a second. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get them. Okay, um, this looks like... Here we go. Okay. So yeah. So first, right? What is it that they actually say? Right? What Heschel's argument? What Soloveitchik's argument? What Feinstein's argument? Okay. Basic first question. Um, I want you to notice how they choose to structure their arguments. I know that's sort of a broad question, but like think about it in whatever way that means. Um, right? Like, what are the proof texts that they use? Who's the audience that they're speaking to? And that'll become a little bit clearer as we go, but I want to leave that somewhat vague. You'll get it or you won't get it, but we'll, we'll go through that together. Um, and then I also want you to think about the historical context for each of them. Right? So, like, even though they're contemporaries of each other, so they're already in the same time period, there's, there's sort of a different, maybe actual or maybe perceived context. Right? Like, what's the world that they each think that they are in? Everyone get those questions? Right. But otherwise, just read it. Just like have some fun. Go through it. See what they say. Okay, any questions before we jump in? You want us to read the whole thing. So I want you to try to go through. I tried to underline underline some key portions of it. Um, you know what? That's a great question. So why don't we just say for a second. Let's, um, so, sorry, let me just kind of look at the sources. Um, so, Nostra Tate is like three pages long. So, yeah, I want you to read Nostra Tate. When you get to the paragraph on Muslims, I sort of mark it off. When you get to the paragraph on Muslims, go in that. Um, Dr. Wimet and Mark Archibald are each two or three pages. So, like, I would read those, but you don't have to, like, spend a lot of time. You know, like, I want you to sort of see them. Um, when you start to get to, like, the essay, so I would say, like, um, for Heschel, Read through it, but Heschel is going to be mixed with a lot of philosophy, so you can sort of like use your judgment of like which parts you let yourself, you know, I mean, 
sort of go where you're passionate. So if you find something Heschel writes that you want to like dig in deeper, dig in deeper. Um, but in Heschel's on improving Catholic church relations, in particular, he's going to have um, four criteria. He's going to have four proposals that he's going to make. So I want you to make sure you get those four proposals. Um, for salvation confrontation, the beginning part of it, he goes through this like very long um, uh, sort of like like argument about the creation of man. You can sort of skim through, like I mean it's good to see, but you really want to sort of get more towards his end where he really starts talking about um, also sort of like what are the criteria for dialogue. But it's sort of good to see that introductory part of it. And then salvation, uh, not salvation, I'm sorry, fine scene, but it's, it's just like two pages of the actual response. Alright, do you suggest that we uh, if Catherine can be confused to each other or buy it or buy it. I think it would be good to like read it out loud here and then you know. But there's so much material. I think that's the problem. So much material that you talk about separately. So what I want you all to do, I know there's a lot of material here. What I want you to do is follow your heart. Like we will go through a lot of this together also. I just like start reading it however you want to read it. Note what's noteworthy for you. Um, and then, like, that's what I want you to bring back. So, I am. I am. So there's some parts, there's some parts that are underlined. Um, so, you know, you'll sort of, like, pick up on those. For the most part, like, I, I have given you all of the original sources. See where it takes you. Okay. So, let's, we're going to come back together. Um, I know everybody out has a different part, and that's fine. Um, I'm going to be here, and I don't want to use the microphone, so you're welcome to come closer. If you need me to use the microphone, I will, but I prefer not to. Um, and what I was saying at the beginning is the reason why I gave you all the smart packet was, as you can see, there's a lot to unpack within it. It's hard to choose the different pieces. And you're, take it home and read it again and again and again. I mean, these are, these are the types of essays. Well, I'll say for Heschel and Paul Dejic, I think time seems a little more straightforward. For Heschel and Paul Dejic, you could read these again and again and, and still continue to um, unpack. And there's a reason why they're there's a philosophy for um, So what I want to, I'm going to start off with giving you a little bit of the more historical context. And I didn't want to give it to you in advance, but I didn't want to color your opinion. Um, but a lot of you probably have heard of these three figures. Um, I wanted to give you a little bit of background on them, so just to kind of talk about who they are. Um, talk a little bit about Vatican II, and then we're going to jump into the sources themselves. So, um, Joseph Baruch is remembered as a Jewish philosopher, a theologian, and a spiritual leader to millions of America's Orthodox Jewish community. He was born, like I said, in 1903 in modern-day Belarus. Um, he was heir to the Salvation dynasty, so his family already had been well-known um, as leaders in the community. Salvation um, was educated in both religious studies and secular studies. He earned his doctorate in philosophy from the University of Berlin. And then very interestingly, he actually credits um, in the University of Berlin, he, has, and he and Heschel both get the same doctorate where they credit some of the same advisors. Um, so when I, when I told you at the beginning, like, this is what I love about the story, like they really are, like they're leading these overlapping lives. Um, in the 1930s, he immigrated to the United States. He settled in Boston, where he was the chief rabbi of the Orthodox community there. He settled in Maimonides School. Um, 
he, he really was seen as sort of his father in modern Orthodox Judaism, right, with his physicist of Torah and Mada, Torah and Science, um, which was adopted by Yeshiva University. Um, from the early 1940s until 1984, Rabbi Soloveitchik served as the Rosh Yeshiva of the Rabbi Isaac Elkanon Theological Seminary at YU, and he is credited with ordaining thousands of young men, certifying more rabbis than any other headmaster in the history of the university. Right, and so this is like the influence of the rock, right? It's, it's this leader of so many. So Heschel also is given the title of a theologian and educator of philosopher. He was born in Warsaw, Poland in 1907, into a family that counted back seven generations of Hasidic rabbis. Yes. Sorry, who gave the title of Heschel, I'm talking about now. He gave the title, because they both titled the title. Oh, they're, they're called that. They're, they're, right, this is just how they're regarded. They're known as theologians, as philosophers. Um, he had traditional training in Talmud, immersed himself in Jewish mysticism, while also getting this modern Western education. In 1924, he moved to Berlin, where he taught Talmud there. He also attended the University of Berlin. He got his doctorate in 1933. Um, in 1938, right now on Heschel, in 1938, Heschel was deported along with the rest of the Polish Jewish residents of Germany. He returned to Warsaw, where he taught for eight months, until he Invited to join the faculty of the Reform Seminary, Hebrew Institute, HJC, uh, Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati. That's what got him out of Poland, so he went to HJC. He arrived um, and was on the faculty in 1940. And then five years later, he took the chair of Professor of Jewish Ethics and Mysticism at the conservative rabbinical institution, JPS, the Jewish Theological Seminary, where he remained until his death. By 1960, Heschel was the most widely read theologian, Jewish theologian in America. Even more than Rupert? Oh, yeah. If you call him a Jewish theologian. Yeah. Um, so Heschel becomes a really interesting character because Heschel is often associated with the conservative movement, but actually his background is very similar to that of Salvechik. Um, and what becomes interesting about Heschel and Salvechik is that what more influences where they end up is really more about what got them out of Europe than necessarily where they aligned. I mean, Heschel never quite fit into JTS. He was always sort of yeah. too mystical, too fitting. I mean, and he had no dummy. Yeah, he really didn't. And, and this is like one of the modern, I, I mean, maybe like, you know, but like, like the modern day conservative movement will try to take credit for Heschel. You know, they'll look back and they'll say, right, but like, look at Heschel. Where, where, when Heschel was alive, Heschel was never appreciated. I mean, it's like, we're going to get off track for a minute, right? But like, everyone wants to talk about that famous picture of Heschel marching in Selma with Martin Luther King. Heschel was vilified for doing that. JTS was so upset that he, this is like the best known speaker, right? And JTS did not like that he went. Now, ask anybody in the Jewish right? Oh, and Heschel marched with King, right? But nobody, I mean, they, they berated Heschel for his participation in that. And the boss left JTS. There were certainly people, maybe, but he, he just, like, he never quite fit in. I mean, Heschel, first of all, I mean, the Jewish community wasn't fully on board with everything that Martin Luther King was doing, and so, but also, like, Heschel was always more of a mystic, right? Like, his love, like, he had a personal relationship with Martin Luther King that had to do with sort of just, like, their love of God and his religion. I mean, you see some of his philosophy, but he, didn't, he never fit in with JTS. JTS is much more of an academic institution. So, you know, like, they, they would come to class, and, you know, like, these, People would come with their pens and their books. So where's the Heschel? Like Heschel would go to sit and be doing for a half hour first. You know, like that was that was like that was Heschel. I know, no, it was great, but like, like the students that you right now, everyone, everyone, yeah, 
Right? It was all about modernity. It was all about right? like, this, this rise of the conservative movement. It, right? it was, so Heschel remember, he never quite fit in with them. Um, but um, right, and then we've got Rameau foremost voices. 
Frankie's not involved in this. I don't even know who's invited. I don't even know that he was invited to it. Well, yeah, AJC, as this is happening, I don't have the exact, uh, I don't have the exact data back. This is just an advisory group that AJC pulled together. So AJC pulled this advisory group to then be sort of helping this process of happening in Rome. Okay, so AJC brings in, and if you notice, the Walk Together Rabbit, you know, talk about Heschel and Cells, AJ, um, become the major voices of this. Already in 1960, Rex declared before rabbis at the World Jewish Congress that he opposed the presence of Jews as observers with any formal status at, at the Ecumenical uh, Council. Excuse me, does that mean that others from other faith communities had formal status? No, this is really, more, I mean, it's, it's mostly a Catholic thing. The Jews are the only ones that are really getting more involved. I mean, if you notice, they sort of make mention back into about like Muslims with Hindus, but they're sort of an afterthought. This right. is really about their relationship with the Jews. And so it's a question of whether or not Jews can actually participate, or should this be a Catholic discussion? Which you actually notice already in some of the Salvation's writings, the Salvation's feels that you have to let the Catholics do what the Catholics do, and Jews don't tell Catholics what to do. The Salvation proposed Jews actually participating in any way. Right? Catholics need to figure themselves out. We don't tell them what to do, and why don't we tell them what to do? Because we don't want them to tell us what to do. How do you understand the timing? What why is the Catholic Church undergoing this revolution? Why is the Catholic Church undergoing this revolution at this time? Because suddenly they realized maybe they had something to do with the Holocaust. The Holocaust is a huge impact. Um, you know, so definitely. Huh? He does talk a lot about it. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a huge impact. I mean, the world has really gone through this whole moment. I mean, post-World War II, post the Holocaust, the world realizes what happened, and the church starts to realize some of their theological underpinnings that are responsible for what ultimately could lead to the Holocaust. And so the Pope brings together this commission to say, you know, maybe we need to start rethinking. Now remember, the Jews are one piece of that into, though. That into is also, they're debating if priests should get married. They're debating if they can start doing the liturgy in, the, in English instead of the Latin. I mean, there's tons of things that are happening. But certainly, I mean, for our purposes, we're focused on relations with the Jews, which does then largely for the Holocaust. What about the Protestants? So what I said at the beginning is that, is that the Protestants go through their own sort of evolutionary process, but they don't have a formal structure that requires the same process in, in a hierarchical way that the church does. So the Protestants end up becoming heavily influenced by the church, but what happens is that, I mean, the, the church, the Catholic church, not only reevaluates its relationship with Jews, but also reevaluates its relationship with Protestants. <laughs> and so what we actually start to see happening becomes what they would consider a trilateral dialogue, we might call bilateral, but it's actually what you see in the letter that, um, Feinstein sent to Bernard Lander is that he's invited to a Protestant Jewish Catholic dialogue. And so it becomes this triangle where the church is sort of reaching out to all of those. And then as as Jews are sort of getting more involved with this, the Protestants start to get involved as well. So what you say, you know, the Catholics, they have a guy that can say, make it so. You know, right. he walks into the church on Good Friday and he gives the you make this stupid, strike that. They strike it. Protestants don't have anybody who can do that. Exactly. So it's much more of a grassroots problem that happens within the Protestant community. And the Protestant community had also, you'll hear stories, there are dialogues that are happening, there might be outreach to choose, you might have an individual minister who's meeting with a rabbi. Um, it doesn't really, I mean, this is sort of all happening simultaneously. Like, this is really when interfaith dialogue becomes like a big push. And so the Protestants are getting on board, but you don't have the same 
you know, there, there's not sort of the essays about it in the same way. It would have been a minister who says, you know what, there's a clinic out now, maybe we should invite them over and, you know, we'll sort of start this process. But the Catholic Church is really the one that's driving it in a lot of ways for those reasons. Right, so it's interesting, right, so 1960, Salvation could say that he doesn't think that any Jew should be participating. 1961, just a year later, November 26, 1961, which was changed from November 25th, which had been a Saturday, um, Heschel is able to go to a meeting with Cardinal Bea. So they're already changing things, right? So Heschel kind of jumps into all of this stuff. Um, they start to have these great conversations, talk about shared study. <clears throat> 1962, Heschel receives a personal letter from Cardinal Bea in Germany. B-E-A. Oh. Um, I would have been there. Um, he, he expressed his anticipation of the memorandum that Heschel was going to submit, which is the memorandum that I gave to you. Um, Heschel gave that to him in 1962. In 1963, Cardinal Bayer visits New York. Heschel chaired the delegation of Jewish leaders who meet privately with him at a banquet in his honor. Heschel speaks of the common threat of evil facing humanity and the necessity of dialogue. And according to records, Salvation was scheduled to attend that event, but was not able to go because his wife was very sick, which you actually also read reference to in Fine Right and Fine Seeds Letter Salvation. He yeah. said, right, I hear your wife is not doing well. Um, but apparently, according to some of the cardinals, they say that they met privately with Salvation and had a very positive conversation. There's early drafts of Nostra Aetate get released. Some of them are released in the New York Times. And the earlier drafts of Nostra Aetate don't specifically use the word deified, but do reference the fact that Jews should not be blamed for the death of Jesus, but also express a desire that ultimately all the Jews and Christians will be reunited as one community of faith. Called Catholic, right? Um, Jews get a hold of that, and the Jewish community gets really upset. Um, let me just see exactly. Um, Heschel calls the draft spiritual fratricide. Right, which is such a great term, right? What's, what's fratricide? Right? So spiritual fratricide. Right, is what Heschel says. He says, Heschel says that faced with the choice of conversion or death in the gas chambers of Auschwitz, he would choose Auschwitz. Right, that's what Heschel's response is. September 14th, it's Arab Yom Kippur. Heschel has an audience with Pope Paul VI, who has taken over. John XXIII has died during this process, Pope Paul VI. He goes to him on Arab Yom Kippur to persuade him to adopt the original language against the conversion of the Jews. Um, and Heschel said about this effort, he said, I succeeded in persuading even the Pope. He personally cropped out a paragraph in which there was reference to conversion or mission to the Jews. The Pope himself, this great old wise church in Rome, realizes that the existence of Jews as Jews is so holy and so precious that the church would collapse if the Jewish people would cease to exist. Where did he get this? This is what Heschel wrote. Um, and according to Eugene Fisher, who was the executive secretary of the Secretariat for Catholic Jewish Relations for the National Conference of Catholic Bishops, he says that Heschel's efforts ultimately had such a transforming effect that by 1967 he was able to write that the schema of the Jews, 
is the first statement of the church in history, the first Christian discourse dealing with Judaism, which is devoid of any expression of hope for conversion. So this is the very first church document that references Jews that does not reference their hope for conversion. Do you know how we can do this before we do what we say to us? Yeah. I know, maybe he said spiritual fratricide. That's a pretty good phrase. Um, I, you know, I, mean, I, think, I think what you see in, what is, in some of Heschel's writings, I think it's, it's like, you, I don't know the precise words that he says, but I think you can imagine based on the writing. There's argument against uh, the Catholics going for conversion, because it seems to me that that's just what they need. They, they will want to hang on to their centuries old desire to convert the Jews. So to get them knocked off that point, because I don't know how so to argue. You know? So let's, let's talk about what each of them say, and then let's see what we can yeah. figure out in terms of the argument. Okay, so that's sort of the background. That's, um, that's sort of the, the lead-up to where we get to in terms of some of our documents. So I know there was a lot to unpack in all of it, um, but let's start with Heschel, because that's the one that we're sort of talking about, right? So Heschel, Heschel's just, I mean, it's so great to read all this. So like, it's, it's, so brilliant, and like, I, you know, Heschel is the kind of guy where you can take any one of his lines and like turn it into a bumper sticker, right? Yeah. You can just sort of, um, and the loving kind. The loving kind, yeah, absolutely, right? There's, and, and this is sort of what we say before, right? Like, he really is, like, he's such a trusted, like, in his heart, right? Like, it's just a pure love of humanity. Like, that is Heschel, um, right? Which is, like, he's also sort of a sad figure because, like, <coughs> It's interesting, so Alicia writes lonely man of faith, but like Heschel also has this loneliness in him. I mean, Salvation also does, you see how it manifests, but I mean, Heschel's like alone, and yet like his love for all people, like I don't, I don't know if he doesn't quite feel that aloneness, right? But like, there's no one who sort of lives in his world. Okay, so what is that? What? Maybe, maybe. Um, you know, it's a limited number of people. Okay, so what is it that Heschel says? Right, what's Heschel's wider human world. 
I mean, I, I, I could, uh, whatever effort they're making, mm -hmm. but a lot of people feel that this way. No, 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 I hear your point. Look, I think, I think the Catholic Church today was huge. I mean, I heard people, as you were reading the Nostra Cate, people were like, like, it was huge. It was, it was a momentous fact. I don't want to minimize it. What I do want to say, though, is that I think you're being very kind to the church. You know, the church, the church has to be in relation with us, and you don't have to be in relation to it. It's not really a true statement. We're all intrinsically in relationship with the church. We've probably been like that. Like, because that's the, the nature of whoever the majority is means that we're all immediately in relationship, right? So, like, I mean, how many people here know about Catholic doctrine? No, I mean, you know the holidays, you know. I was, I was once part of a, of a dialogue, a multi-faith dialogue group, where um, we had this exercise. Everybody broke up into their various religious traditions. Buddhists, Hindu, Muslim, Jew, Christian, whatever the faith traditions were that were there. And the task was that you had to create your elevator pitch. You know this notion of the elevator pitch? Like you're, right, if you've been in an elevator with somebody, you've got 30 seconds, whatever, two minutes, plus on your elevator, right? However long it is to convince somebody, you know, to tell somebody something to get to learn more about it. What was your elevator pitch of your religion? And you couldn't use what they said was insider language. Like maybe I'm persuading someone who doesn't know. I can't say, you know, uh, Judaism believes in Torah Moshe Bissinai and we're not right. Like I can't say these things because other people won't understand it, right? Um, every single religious community was able to put together an elevator pitch in a matter of minutes, that's what it says. Really? What did you say? Which Christian? Because 
can look see this evolution as like, you know, here was Judaism and then Christianity like branches out from Judaism. But the reaction is, the reality is, is that here's Judaism and then you get to a point where like everything branches out, right? Like we're no more the religion of the Second Temple than the Christians are the Christianity of the Second Temple. Like we've all evolved. And frankly, the Jewish community has largely evolved as a minority religion within majority Christian countries and very much in reaction to persecution of so, so while, while you're right, like our main theology does not require us to talk as much about Jesus and things like that, I would say that I think it's, I think it's something that we often tell ourselves, but I think that we can't actually understand modern Judaism if we don't actually talk about it in relation to Christianity. So theologically speaking, you're right, but I think from like a modern historical perspective, I think we are, and that's where I, I actually very much support Heschel's statement, but I think Jews should be spending as much time talking about Christianity as Christians should be spending time talking about yeah, it. For what purpose? To understand them better? To get a little shaky? For Heschel's point, it would be to live in this world and to live in relationship with one another is to get to know one another. And my record, this is why I bother. Well, no, I, well, the Moshe Feinstein thing is really interesting in that way. Yeah, he's such yeah, a, he's such a sort of a snake in the mud, but I mean, oh, he has okay. very good justifications and all kinds yeah, of things. Okay, right. Yeah, okay, yeah, right. He calls okay. it an apostasy. Yeah. It's not, right, you know. Right. It's oh. absolute, he's or Gomorrah. It's an absolute prohibition associated with priests in any way. Right. It's really, right. it's really serious. And why? Why, why, why does Feinstein see it as such a problem? Because they want to convert what they see, one more time. Okay, right, enticing out of the way, right? Yeah, you sure That's true. Right, but by the way, I mean, well, so this, this is the question, right? Now, now this becomes really interesting because, again, remember, right, that first draft did say, and we pray for the day when we will all be reunited as one community of faith, which a lot of the people said, Jackson's still praying for our conversion, right? So, but this becomes a context thing, right, of like, what's the world that they're, right? Heschel and Feinstein are fundamentally seeing the Christian community in two different ways in terms of what they're doing. Now, I want to back up one second. What, what, there's some, there's some fundamental differences between what Feinstein writes and what Heschel, Heschel and Salvation write. So, what, right, like, what is Macy? I mean, like, what are we understanding about that? So, so there's that question, but even, even before that, right, like, what language did they each write in? Feinstein's writing all in Hebrew. Right, are most of writing in Hebrew? What's Heschel writing in? English. What's Salvation writing in? English. Why is that significant? Who's going to read it? It's partially the target audience. I'm saying even more than that, right? Hebrew and English are none of their first languages. Uh-huh. Okay? So definitely target audience, but I'm taking even one I'm taking even one step further than that. Even one step more than that. Because for Feinstein, it's his audience, the Hebrew speaking audience. Yeah. It's not a matter of not speaking audience, it's a matter of people who understand how to read rabbinic, beloved Hebrew. Exactly, right? That's the key. Substance. It's a substance, but I say more that Feinstein is the only one who has written a rabbinic, halachic, Argument. Oh, that's really key. That's okay. key. Salvation and Heschel mm-hmm. were in co-opted. They, they have not read. Salvation and Heschel have written philosophical essays, and this is key, especially for Salvation. Heschel, you know, but for Salvation, right? He has not. This is not a holistic treatise. This is not a fact. Feinstein is the only one who has actually written 
a philosophic argument. He writes it in Leviticus Hebrew. He says the sword got more. A, a full prohibition, right? Salvation will never use the word permitted or, or, or prohibited, right? I mean, he says like you should and you shouldn't and things like that. But he never said, you know, a sword. But he never. He he was famous for not for like not making. There are very many. That's true. That was That's true. I'm not talking about it, but I'm saying that in this case, right, yeah. it's also crucial that like the only homophobic piece of that kind of science is that Well, Heschel, Heschel, by the way, doesn't just quote Tanakh. Anyone notice Heschel also quotes New Testament? 
for my salvation, my good friends, my cousin, I hope your wife is getting better. This is a huge problem that we need to face together, and won't you join me in this? And salvation, very notably, does not respond. Right? And so, so we know already that salvation is not worth more for where emotion is. Right? But he's also not where Heschel is. Right? Because he won't go along with Heschel fully. Right? So what, what salvation angle is? Now salvation, like I said, right? We're doing so much. Of all of the things that have been written, and this is also where somebody was mentioning, right? There's no, there's no special authority within Judaism. It makes it so interesting then because there's no one person everyone has to listen to. So it becomes really interesting to see, like, who emerges as authoritative, right? It's very grassroots. And the interesting dialogue, like I said at the beginning, right, confrontation is probably the most influential essay of Christian Jewish relations. Like, this is the cited essay. Yeah. But he says that what fundamentally happens is that when he encounters Eve, the only 
conditions. Did anyone get the, did you get it? Mm -hmm. Start on page 31. Yes. Okay, so what are the four basic conditions? The word independent space community. Exactly, right? We are an independent space community. Now this, by the way, I find really interesting because um, it's very famously, uh, it was after this, very famously, Pope John Paul II said, he, he um, to see it like for the Catholics, they love it. They said, um, he said, the Jews are our elder brothers. Right, and this was seen mm -hmm. supposed to be like, you know, like embracing. I was once at a um, part of the Catholic Jewish dialogue where there was a representative from the Vatican, and he said that. And he said, well, Pope John Paul II, he called you our elder brothers. And I remember one of the Jewish participants, he says, Father, we have a tradition of the younger brother trying to grow the world. Because we don't want to be your older brother. Isn't there a well known book that was in the part of that elder brother? Elder brother is in the title of it. I don't know that one. Um, right, but, but he says, right, you have to realize we're not we're not the precursor of Christianity, we're not the first Israel and you're the second Israel. Like we right, this this is very much special, right? Jews as Jews. We are an independent faith community that has no that we have you have to understand it not in relation to Christianity, but as Judaism. Okay, that's his first criteria. So very much in agreement with Heschel there. Okay. What's the second criteria? So that's an important point. That's still part of the first one, though. But yeah, also, right, that's, that's, that's important, right? Exactly, right? That you have to appreciate what it is, right? And especially when you're talking about a minority tradition within a, minor, a majority culture, you cannot compare it to the majority culture. You have to, right? So. You can't just talk about our Jewish churches. You have to actually learn what a synagogue is. Yes. Yeah. Because the secular you know, it's not going to get into a theological debate. It's going to be part of the management. Right. So that becomes like the key takeaway that people often talk about with the He says, don't talk theologically, talk about humanity. And part of that becomes the second criteria, which is, yeah? Oh, 
Jesus was like was like back then and before we became Christians, Jesus would be no more familiar with modern Judaism than any Sure, no, I know. But that's a challenge back in terms of saying. No, it's definitely a challenge for them. But I would say also, though, that it's recognized for the fact that modern Judaism and ancient Judaism are different communities. Um, so that's sort of the pushback. Right? So for the second part, the second criteria has to do with the logos, the word. This is, this is one of my favorite parts of salvation. I, I find this to be so, so true. You can all disagree with me about this, but I, I, to me, this just rings so true. And, and this, I, I see this in my experience. He says that the word is a really poor medium of conversation. It's the only one we have. But it's a terrible medium because he says what happens is, <clears throat> is that we use words and we think that we've drawn commonality because we have these similar words, where at the end of the day, what we meant by those words were actually very different things. Right? So we were talking about that, right? That, that you go into a room and you go into a dialogue and you sit down with a group of Christians and you say, I believe in God. And they say, I believe in God. And you go, oh, great, so we have no problem. <laughs> but in reality, when you said God, and when they said God, two completely different things. Right? Belief could also be different. Any one of these words, right? So we think, oh, we're agreeing with each other, but actually, right? Now, I said God, and I was imagining, right, the God that we, right, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God of the Exodus, right? And they're thinking about Jesus or the Trinity or whatever way, right? All of these words, right? And so we say, like, you know, I believe that God is just. So I believe God is just. Okay, great. Right? These are loaded terms, and that we actually, when we use words for dialogue, we think that we're drawing bonds that are actually these false bonds. Because we think that we're getting closer, but actually we, we're never getting to this underlying force. And so near a destination, the word is still fine. Right. And so what he says is that's what he says. He says, don't, don't use the theological dialogue. So that's the conundrum of Solomonic. That's the argument everyone makes. Because Solomonic basically says, he says, don't talk theological dialogue, talk socio-political, do act of kindness together, things like that. And the argument back against Solomonic, and where everyone jumps on it, is so like, does Solomonic really believe that doing charity with somebody else is not theological? Thank you. 
talking about translation, but we are. Yeah. Can we talk about the Yes, I think it actually actually yeah. There's just people that I think this is kind of like the end point. This is where the salvation community of the work goes with his Well, I can't do the same thing that we want to do now. I can't just do the 
Right there. 
local level. Um, so, so I say Vatican II is 52 years ago. For the 50th anniversary of Vatican II, um, I actually had the opportunity to go to Rome and, uh, and have an audience with the Pope as part of like, a Jewish delegation that, um, that was there for the anniversary. And is that uh, from the old Pope or the, the current Pope? It was two years no, ago. So it's uh, Pope Grant uh, Francis. Yeah. 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 The nice one. I'm going to choose to go. 
good idea. I'm going to go because I'm going to take one for the team, and I think yeah. it's important. But, you know, and by the time you could have said, look, people should not do this. But, you know, as it says in the Talmud, when the rabbis were called, they had to go to Caesar. This is our Caesar. I'm going to go with the, like, I mean, yeah, there was a way to say that. They didn't choose that path. multiplicity of ways of being in Catholic. 
and people find each other and connect from both communities, yeah? But the notion, it's the folks at the top who sort of want to create more of a notion of there is a Judaism and here's what it is. And I think organically on the ground, you get a very different response and we're coming together. That's yeah. what I think. I think you're totally right. I and mean, I also just add that I think that coming together is something that mm -hmm. has evolved over the past two years. Like that was not something that was happening right away. And that was something where initially after Vatican II, what we really started to see first were um, Jewish studies departments at Catholic University. Oh, we started yeah. seeing mm -hmm. Jewish professors and Catholic professors co-authoring papers. We started to see conferences that were really by and large educational conferences. And then you started to see more of this like joint work, joint um, dialogue and things like that. So mm -hmm. that's a relatively recent phenomenon that you can't discount that like what you're seeing today is because of all of these conversations that happened then. And I think for me, like seeing some of these original writings is not necessarily because I want you to pick like that you know, you have to follow the stock of Feinstein or whatever it is, but it's that I think the arguments they lay out get to some fundamental truth that maybe we all struggle with in some way. Um, and that's what we grapple with as we do this dialogue. And we have to question, right? And sort of for each of us, there's sort of maybe some Heschel, maybe there's some salvation, maybe there's some privacy. Um, and, and the questions are not about just do you do it or not do it, but it's sort of like, what's that fundamental world that we live in? Yeah. What do I see the role of the church? What do I see as the relationship with the trust? Yeah. Right? And that's what we have. I just want to be mindful because we, we are past time. I'm happy to continue talking to anybody, but I do want to make sure that I let you all, I, I think I have to let you all go. But, um,